Our Father, we are daily blessed by the knowledge of your presence in our hearts and lives. Lord, that you, are, that you care for us, that you dwell inside our beings, that you lead us every step of the way, that you enable us to serve you as you have commanded us to, that you give us the strength to be obedient, that you give us understanding of your word as we study it. And Lord, so today we do invite your presence. We resist the hand of the enemy. As the scripture says, humble yourself under the hand of God and resist the devil and he will flee. And we claim that today and trust that you will accomplish your purpose in each one of us. In Christ's name, amen. We've been looking at Genesis chapter 17. And in the first part of the chapter, we see that God came again to Abram and there was another encounter of the first kind between God and Abram, or now Abraham as he becomes. And you'll notice as you read down through those verses as we did last week, he introduces himself. He says, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. And then you'll notice in verse 2, twice, and then in verse uh, at the end of verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant. I will multiply you exceedingly. I will make you a father of a multitude. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will establish my covenant. And in verse 8, I will give you and your descendants the land. I will, I will, I will, I will. God, over and over again, I will do this. Which not only tells us that God is able, it tells us that God is taking the initiative. And so God is at work to accomplish his plan and in his will through this man, Abraham. And it carries over to us today because the promises of this book are ours. And God will, God will, God will do his work in us just as he did in Abraham. And I think the emphasis needs always to be that God did not love Abraham any more than he loves you or that he loves me. And that, uh, you know, the passage of Scripture where we read that God says he is no respecter of persons uh, needs to be brought back into our thinking frequently, I think, because we have a tendency to respect people differently, ourselves. We think more highly of one person than we may of another, but God does not. And this, I think, is a great encouragement to us. Let's read beginning at verse 9 of chapter 17. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And that shall be a sign or the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God is here impressing upon Abraham 
and all those who would follow him the reality of the covenant. And in order to make this real, to make this an ongoing thing, he commanded that a, uh, that a visible physical seal or sign be placed as a reminder of the covenant. This circumcision, which we read about here, would serve as a constant reminder of the covenant which God had made with his people, of his commitment to them and of their commitment to him. Now, as we read in this particular passage, you note that the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed, that is, to his descendants. It was very fitting, therefore, that the sign be placed in the very organ that would be necessary for the propagation of the nation. Now, the word circumcision, if you look it up, basically says to cut around or to clip. This was not a practice unique to the Hebrews. This was a practice practiced amongst other ancient peoples. There is evidence to indicate that the Egyptians, for example, practiced circumcision at the time of Abraham. But it is also interesting to note that as far as we can tell amongst all these ancient peoples, it was done as a puberty rite and was generally not performed until the young man reached 13. Those of you who uh, have read Roots or have seen the film series on Roots know that in, in that particular case amongst the uh, African peoples, the Yoruba, I think it was, were, were they Yoruba? can't remember now, but whatever they were, that the rite was practiced when they were actually older than that. Uh, they were like 16 or 15, somewhere along in there. But it was a puberty rite. The Hebrews were to circumcise on the eighth day, which was a unique practice. There is no evidence of infant circumcision amongst any of the ancient peoples. Since it was to be a sign of the submission of God's people to God himself, the event had a very, very special meaning to the parents. Obviously, the actual event itself had no meaning to the child because the child was not aware of what was happening. I mean, yeah, he felt it, but not in the sense of knowing what in the world was going on. So it became an event where the parents were dedicating their child in commitment to God Almighty. It's somewhat analogous to our baby dedication. Our baby dedication, of course, can be perfunctory. Hopefully it is not. Hopefully, when we bring our children forward for the, what we call baby dedication, we're truly giving this child to the Lord for whatever the Lord's purpose is. And we're committing ourselves to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In that sense, it is very closely analogous. The passage goes out of its way to illustrate by way of repetition that even those not born of Abram's lineage, but who lived amongst the Hebrews, were to be circumcised. If you're going to be amongst the Hebrew nation, you had to be, if you were a male, circumcised. This would signify obedience and submission to whom? Well, to the God who commanded it here, El Shaddai, God Almighty. 
It's kind of interesting here, the, the phraseology which is used, because the scripture tells us here in the passage that we read that any male who was not circumcised living amongst the Hebrews would be what? Cut off from the people. In other words, if the foreskin of the male organ was not removed in accordance to God's command, then that person would be cut off from his people. He would be thrown out. He would be even killed. Why? Because failure to obey showed what? First of all, a lack of reverence for God. If we don't obey God, it's because we don't reverence God, at least in part. And also it indicated a lack of respect for the people amongst which you were living, they were living. We know later on that uh, when the children of Israel were invading the land and they came to uh, Ai and they tried to capture Ai, they were defeated. And they were not defeated because they as a nation had sinned, but because one member of that nation had sinned and had taken some of the goodies from Jericho and buried them beneath his tent. That one member polluted the whole nation. And thus, those that would refuse circumcision because they did not want to obey God demonstrated a hardness of heart. And believe me, hardness of heart is contagious. Hardness of heart is something that's natural. You have to work against hardness of heart. It's very, very commonplace for us if we just function in the flesh and in the way our lives are normally bent to be, we're going to lean towards being hard of heart because it's only God that can make the heart soft and change us into the people we need to be. Obedience to God does sometimes require us to do the hard and the painful thing. And that's partly illustrated here. But failure to obey demonstrates a lack of commitment, a lack of love. As I was re reviewing this this morning, a couple of passages or one passage came to my mind, which I don't have in the outline, but it just came to my mind at the moment this morning. Let me just read uh, a couple of verses from John chapter 14. The wrong John here. John chapter 14. Jesus, of course, speaking to his disciples, and he says in verse 15, If you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. Then in verse 21, he repeats it. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then down in uh, verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So Jesus is saying, beyond even reverence, it comes to the basic fundamental principle of do we love him? If we love him, we will obey him. If we don't obey him, it means we don't love him, thus in reverse. And so this particularly difficult task, I mean, it's no easy thing for, a child, for, for parents to bring their baby in to know this baby is going to go through great pain at that very tender age. And yet, this they had to do to demonstrate <coughs> their commitment, their faith, their love. But I think really, what's really uh, a key understanding here is to go behind the circumcision of the flesh 
To understand what God was primarily concerned about is what we would call circumcision of the heart. Because that's where it really comes to the basic truth. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, reverence the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandment and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven, just as he had promised to Abraham, as we read clear back in the 12th and 15th chapters of Genesis. Circumcision of the heart is what is really what God is after. The circumcision of the flesh demonstrated the reality of the circumcision of the heart. That is, the willingness to go through with the physical act demonstrated the commitment and the love necessary towards God. We read this passage several weeks ago, or we read even more than I'd like to read this morning. I'd like to go back to the fourth chapter of Romans again because of the references here to circumcision. Paul, of course, is talking about the principle of justification and what really is the basis of justification. Let's read beginning at verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abram as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision as a seal, a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So, you know, the faith was there first. 
that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith, of the faith of our father Abraham, when, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the faith, the righteousness of faith. This drives behind, and you see the root of it all. Obviously, in the day that Paul was writing, there were many, many Jews who believed that their standing before God was demonstrated by the fact that they had been physically circumcised. And thus, obviously, they were in like Flynn, right? After all, they were God's people. They were circumcised. But Paul is making the point here that Abram was righteous before he was circumcised. Your circumcision of the flesh does not mean you are automatically circumcised of heart. The circumcision of heart comes by faith. The passage we read this morning in Genesis tells us that the male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day of his life. There were at least two reasons for this particular timing. One was the child had survived through the first week of his life. Most of us know that obviously the more days a child can live, the better are his chances to live even more days than that. From what I understand, a lot of insurance companies won't even insure a child until the child's six months old, some not until they're a year old because of the higher <coughs> rate of loss. But uh, if the child has survived the first seven days, then the child will probably survive circumcision. More importantly, though, is the fact that the mother had completed her seven days of impurity. Uh, the first seven days are set aside as a day, a days of impurity, and she was not to, to go anywhere to touch anything. She was not to have anything to do with the temple or the synagogue. There was no synagogue in these days. The temple or, was no temple either. Uh, what would become the tabernacle. After the seven days were up, she could go then to the door of the tabernacle where she could make her offering and where she could have her child circumcised. Now, it's interesting, they didn't do the circumcision in a hospital. They did it in the place of worship or at the place of worship. This rite is discussed in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 12. It's a very short chapter. It's only eight verses long. But this particular chapter deals not only with circumcision, but with this purification of the mother at the time of childbirth. I think it's important for us to look at it and then to make a few points uh, relative to this uh, passage. Leviticus 12.1 Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch anything consecrated, nor enter the sanctuary, until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. When the days of her purification are completed... 
for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. She shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now, before I say anything about that, let me just note that we have example of that, of course, in both the case of Elizabeth and in the case of Mary. In the New Testament, we read in Luke 1.59, And it came about on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias, and, and we know, of course, Zacharias' tongue was loose, and he said, No, his name shall be John. So that was the circumcision of John the Baptist. And then in the 21st verse of the second chapter, when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So obviously this was a long-term practice, which of course continues on even today to be practiced by the Jews. Now I think there are some important points to note, particularly relative to this 12th chapter of Leviticus, as it fits back in with uh, our passage in Genesis. Certainly, there probably are and were certain hygienic and thera therapeutic uh, values in the initial seven-day separation after the birth of a child. And probably even as it carried over into the 33-day period that followed, the sort of stay close to home, don't get excited period uh, uh, that totals the 40 days. And in many societies today, this is still practiced. Uh, in much of Latin America, they still practice it. I mean, the woman is not, not allowed to do anything for 40 days after the birth of a child. She's just to take it easy and just care for the child and not do anything else. And many people in our society say, whoa, how, what about that? <laughs> Sounds like a good idea to me. Although there may have been, as I said, some hygienic and therapeutic value in this, I think, secondly, the real uh, purpose of it was not that or the primary purpose was not, but was rather uh, a symbolic thing. And that is, therefore, that we're talking about ritual purification here. The scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That is the law of God. So, any contact with blood, other than the blood of the sacrifice, required ritual purification and a time of separation for anybody, male or female. Why? I believe the purpose is to instill a proper respect for blood. The scripture tells us that the life is in the blood. You and I live in a day when blood is not at all considered very important. Blood pours forth everywhere. I mean, it pours all over the television screen and the movie theaters and in real life. There is very little respect for the giving or the shedding of blood. I think what God wanted these people to do was to recognize that blood was not to be treated as a mundane or common thing. 
when shed by a sacrificial animal, the blood was there for the representation of the covering of sin. Because it symbolized the most precious thing that would ever exist in the history of the universe, and that is the blood of Christ. Christ's blood would be shed so that we might all have forgiveness of sin and might have eternal life. And if there is no respect for blood, and if it's treated as, as trite and mundane, then what could the meaning of Christ's blood have to anybody anyway? And so I think this was, all this was built in. And you read many other passages in Leviticus and other parts of the, New, of the Old Testament which teach us that any contact with the dead and with blood required a period of separation and a period of cleansing. The question is, why 40 days? Why was a woman to be separated or to have this period of time uh, 48 days in duration? Well, I think there are several possibilities here. One is that uh, sometimes the postnatal emissions weren't completed until 40 days, and obviously that varies from person to person. Many feel that there was a representation here in the 40 days of one day per week of pregnancy, which comes out approximately right. But I think more important than either of those two concepts is the fact that 40 days somehow in Scripture tends to symbolize a time of trial, a time of temptation. How many times does it show up in Scripture anyway, this 40-day idea? How many days did it rain in the great rain in the flood? 40 days, right? How many days was Moses up on Mount Sinai receiving the law? 40 days. How many days was Elijah tested in the wilderness of the Sinai? 40 days. How many days was Jesus tempted in the wilderness of Judea? 40 days. And so you see this 40-day this concept being repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. Somehow, to God, it has a special meaning. And because it has a special meaning to God, it was to have a special meaning to His people. Then, of course, the question arises, but how come for baby girls the lady has to go through a basic two-week period then a total of 80 days of separation before she can return to normal life? Is it because when you have a baby girl, you know, it's extra tough? Is it because if you have a baby girl, that's, that's a bad thing? Of course not. It has nothing to do with that. What I have found, though, is trying to pursue an answer to this is that almost all the commentators are just speculating. Nobody really knows exactly why it was double for a female over a male. But let me just give to you some of the ideas that are mentioned, the most likely ones anyway. One is that the extra 40 days was symbolic of the fact that a daughter was born who herself would in the future go through the menstrual cycle, which of course is the same length as this initial time of separation. And so the doubling was symbolic of the fact that she was a woman who would go through this cycle through her childbearing days. Others feel that it, instead of the girl being circumcised, that the 40 days, extra 40 days, were symbolic of her being born into the Hebrew race and took the place of the circumcision of the male baby. 
Well, if those don't t seem very satisfying to you, uh, if you can find one that's better, let me know, because the commentators don't seem to have any better ideas than that, <laughs> as far as the ones I've uh, studied anyway. You'll notice also in this particular passage in Leviticus that an offering was to be made. Not only was a child to be circumcised, but an offering was to be made. A lamb was to be brought, and a turtle dove or pigeon was to be brought as a sin offering as, and as an offering for atonement. For what? For the sin of the mother. What, in having a baby? <laughs> no. First of all, we need to note that the scripture, as we read it in Hebrew, um, in, in Leviticus there, allows for a person who cannot afford a lamb. If the person cannot afford a lamb, then two turtle doves or two young pigeons may take the place. This is a very, very important passage because as we, that's the passage that helps us to understand why we read what we do in, what is it, Luke 2, 21, 22. And when the days for her, their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, <laughs> new kind of dove, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which of course symbolize the fact that Mary was poor. That Mary, you have, pardon me, but as I said, I have a cold. <laughs> it's not always a respecter of a time frame either. Why? The question we might ask is why? Why is this done at all? Most of us, I think, are familiar with uh, the great Psalm of David, the 51st Psalm. We don't need to turn to it, but in the fifth verse of that Psalm, it says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not saying there that he was the fruit of an act of, an adultery, uh, of adultery or an act of fornication. He's not saying that at all. He is referring back to the fact that every person who enters this life is born in sin. We're born into a world of sin. We're born of sinful parents, and thus we are born in sin. We all bear the sin of Adam and Eve in our nature. We are fallen as we're born into this world. Now, we talk about the baby and say, oh, isn't he sweet or innocent? No. He is neither, well, he may be sweet, but he isn't innocent. And no child is innocent. We're all born into sin. So the point of the sacrifice was to illustrate, first of all, that a sinner had been born. An atonement was going to have to be made. I believe God wanted to impress on his people that the sin of Adam and Eve is contagious and it carries on and there's no one born into this life who is free from that sin save Jesus Christ himself who was miraculously born of Mary. The little, that little baby had a great potential for evil. You know, I, I think as we look at our little child, we don't say, boy, what evil is that kid going to get into? <laughs> Hopefully not. That's not our thought at all. But there is great potential for evil in that child as that child is born. And therefore, he or she must be dedicated to the Lord. 
And so they bring the child to the door of the temple where the priest circumcises the child according to the commandment of God. And the parents are, ex are, are, ex are, are displaying their respect and their reverence for God and his word by being obedient. And hopefully then in their hearts they're saying, Oh God, help us to raise this child in the nurture and admonition of your word. And that needs to be true for all of us. As children are born into our family, whether our children's children or whatever they may be, that they're dedicated to him. Because that child must learn to personally love and respect God. Being circumcised will not save him. It didn't save, well, you know, you look back through the pages of Scripture. And how many leaders and how many people in the, in the Hebrew nation did very gross things? Now you think of some of the kings of Israel, horrible persons. You think of Ahab. He was a circumcised member of the, of the Hebrew nation. But was he a godly man? Far from it. So the circumcision of the flesh doesn't make that person uh, free from sin, doesn't bring salvation to that person. Just as baby dedication does not save that baby. Infant baptism is practiced in some Christian churches. That doesn't save that baby. That baby has to come to the place where he or she, himself or herself, allows God to circumcise the heart that atonement might be real for that particular individual. But to go through the ritual puts the parents and the child on the right track and, and, and ind indicates obedience to begin with. And then, of course, the parents have to dedicate themselves to raising the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because if the love and respect of God is not there, then disaster is down the road for that child and disaster might be down the road for that family and even for that nation. I think it's important for us to note, as I, I have a, uh, on the outline there, that the restrictions and the requirements placed here in Leviticus chapter 12 have nothing to do with the fact that the woman was somehow a greater sinner in this. Obviously not. They are simply visual aids. The what God required there was a visual aid so that people will understand the eternal importance of atonement. Sin had to be understood as eternally lethal. We, we, you know, we live in a society which tri it treats it tri tritely, lightly. Sin is not important. Sin doesn't exist. Each person can do what he or she feels like. We're law unto ourselves in this society. But God wants us to know otherwise. With the coming of Christ, of course, the visual aids were no longer necessary. We're not required to be circumcised in the flesh today to be a part of the kingdom of God. Ladies are not required to bring a, a sacrifice to the door of the church and to stay out of circulation for 40 days any longer. None of these things are required because Christ has come and all the symbolism has been fulfilled in him. The plan of salvation is clear. The rituals and blood of the Old Testament were merely symbols of the atoning death of Christ. 
Now that Christ has come, you and I have the written Word of God in our hands. All of what He wants to say to us is there. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who makes this Word real to us. It is He who gives us the strength to live in obedience day after day. It is He who makes us truly children of the King. Well, let me just finish by reading the passage I have on your outline there in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, beginning at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, the schoolmaster, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves together with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. By the way, that is a statement of, of status, not of function. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. What promise? The Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12. So we are the inheritors of that covenant. And we don't live under the law today because it was the schoolmaster that prepared the way so that when Messiah came, the people would recognize their need and that they were sinners and that they couldn't obey the law and that they needed the atoning work of Christ. That is why we need to study the Old Testament and understand the law of the Old Testament because we then realize how far short of the glory of God we fall and how great is our need of Christ to enable us to have atonement of the Spirit of God to make us into true children of God and of the Word of God to show us the path upon which we must walk. Well, we'll continue on with chapter 17 next week.